want you to open your Bible today. I want to speak to our mothers. As is obvious, I'm not a mother, but the Word of God speaks to us and it's going to use me to do it today. Uh, my, I'm going to speak on Mother's Day, but my wife's going to speak on Father's Day. That's true. Y'all look at me like you're stunned. No, she's, I get off on Father's Day, okay? I'm giving her, she was going to speak today, but because of, the, of uh, Ezra Jude's birth and everything and, and being with our daughter, uh, I gave her a break, so I'm, I, but I'm speaking on Mother's Day. She's going to speak on Father's Day because I'm going to get a break. Pastor's going to get a break. I'm going to get me a break up in here. Come on. And uh, so that's true. So we anticipate what, how she's going to straighten all of us guys out. I know I need a lot of straightening. She, uh, she's been straightening for almost 33 years now, and, and I'm not there yet, but you know that old song, He's Still Working on Me. I want to uh, share, I want to have our text today, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 5 in just a moment. I read a, a little clip about a little boy that his mother said to him, said, it's the Lord who makes little boys good. And then the little boy said, yes, but mothers help a lot. <laughs> and I would say amen to that. I read of another little boy that he was wanting to get his mother a gift, so he slipped into a department store, and he went to the ladies' section, and he said to the attendant there, to this lady, I, I want to get my mom a slip. And the, little, the lady said, well, I don't know anything about your mother. Is she tall? Is she short? Is she thin? Is she heavy? What, what is she like? He said, she's just perfect. <laughs> and so the lady wrapped up a, a, a size 34 slip. Two days later, the mom came back in and traded it out for a 52. <laughs> but to the little boy, she was perfect. Amen? And little boys feel that way about their mom. Their moms are their heroes. And if it hadn't been for godly moms, oh, where would our world be today? And where would the church be today? So we're so grateful for you moms that are here. This morning, I want to talk to us, particularly to our mothers, but this, is, this could also be applied to any family. And I really want to minister to mothers, but I want to minister to families today. I think there's a vital need in our nation to speak to families. So many families broken, marriages broken, children are the product of brokenness from that. I believe in our own community here in the Mesquite, in this whole area, there's a need for family ministry. I'm very grateful for my family I'm grateful for my wife. I'm grateful for the grace of God and our children, now our grandchildren. But there's something that the Lord wants to say to us. I want to talk about passing along our faith. I watched the Olympics some time ago, and I can't remember what year it was, but it was the United States 4x4 uh, four, four relay were the fastest ones. They were the fastest guys in the world, and they were winning the race. But they, they lost the race. They came in last place instead of first place. And you know what happened is they dropped the baton. When they were going to pass off the baton, they dropped it and they came in last place. Do you know that baton being passed is an important part? It doesn't matter how fast you are, but when you hand off that baton, it's got to be right. Well, I can tell you, all of us in here are getting a little older every day. Even you young people, every day that goes by... There's another day, another moment that clicks off. We're not always going to be here, but the church is going to be here. And we have to, in our families and in the church, we have to pass off the baton of faith. We have to pass off the baton of gospel preaching, the gospel, the, the baton of evangelism, the, the baton of godly living, the baton of prayer, the baton of, of the work of God, of discipleship. We have to pass these off. We can't drop the baton, especially when it has to do with our children. It's a great responsibility that we have today. Here's a marvelous text of Scripture. It's 2 Timothy chapter 1, and this will be just three verses here, 5, 6, and 7. And it reads like this. Paul speaking to Timothy says, When I call to remembrance... The genuine faith. Let that sink in. You know, the Bible talks about a lot of different kinds of faith. You know that even demons have a certain kind of faith. Not real. This is genuine faith. So, so in Timothy's home, we're going to read of two ladies, a grandmother and a mother. Dad was not saved. He was a Greek. 
But we read that there was something real there. There was something, a genuine faith. And I won't go into the, you know, we could preach a whole message today on what genuine faith is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse about 5. But it says here there's a genuine faith that is in you, Timothy, which dwelt first, where was it first? In your grandmother, Lois. So there's a grandmother in this home, the Jewish community, uh, or the, the Greek community, actually, very families very closely connected together here. The grandmother had a faith. Then it says, and then your mother also had a faith, Eunice, and I'm persuaded it is also in you. Paul then in verse 6 encourages him to stir up this gift that had been seen, this gift of faith that had been dying down, stir, fan the flame, and then that great verse, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Father, today, anoint the reading, the preaching of your word. Nourish each of us. We want to help your people today as, we, as it relates to our families. We bless our mothers today. Do something in us. Strengthen us in our families today. Let us set a hedge of protection around our boys, our girls, our marriages, and all that we have. Bless us today in this work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen today. One of the things that I want you to notice about this uh, text of Scripture is that there's three generations here. The baton started with Lois, passed to Eunice, and then somehow passed on to Timothy. Three generations of successfully passing the, ta- the baton of, of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Really, the objective of Christian parents, and we're speaking but the mothers today, is really to raise godly children. And I think that we would probably all agree that it's, it's very challenging to do that in the evil culture that we live in today. It's really a challenge to raise up godly children that are, are raised up in a godly family and then are able to have the strength to live out their faith in the midst of the world that they're going to be living in, working in, etc. But we do have a great guide. And how I many know it's the Word of God? Thy Word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. This is the guide. This is the guide that works. And so we're going to look to this guide today. I want you to consider this, that family is the fundamental institution, the first and fundamental institution found in the Word of God. Older than the state, even even as far as naturally older than the church, there was a family that God created. And it was in the beginning that Adam and Eve were the very first family. Genesis 1, 26-28 says that God made Adam, made man in his own image, in his own likeness. That means that man is different than the, a lower species of animal. Man is, a, is able to have a relationship with God. He's a tripart being like God. Just as God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, same in essence, three persons, you and I are tripart beings. We have a spirit that can communicate with God. We have a soul that relates to the world around us. We have a body which, is, which we live out our lives in. And so God created man. And then in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, God put Adam in a deep sleep. And, he, and out of his side, he created a woman. He created Eve. And this is the first family. And God made a precedence, one man with one woman. This is something that children really need to be taught today. Our children are being damaged by the, by the false information and the, the things that are, that are uh, false doctrines, false teachings that are damaging our children. We're seeing things that are happening in California. We won't go into all that. But we need to really keep, uh, give our children an understanding of what family is and what marriage is between a man and a woman. You say, well, well, isn't there other setups there? No, no. The Bible is very clear. Matthew chapter 19, uh, many thousands of years later, Jesus, the very Son of God, God himself, he came and he reaffirmed this. And he said, did you not remember in the beginning when God created the male and female, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So we have this first family. And so we have uh, this family. One of the primary purposes which God has for a family is children. And I realize that not everyone 
can have children. Sometimes those things, for whatever reason, they're not physically able to have children. But most couples can have children. And your goal in raising children is to raise godly children. That's the call of God upon each parent's lives. Matthew, I'm sorry, Malachi 3 and verse number 15. Listen to these words. But did he not make them one, husband and wife? Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Why this oneness in marriage? Why this oneness in the marriage relationship? What does God seek? Here's what it is. He, God, seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none dwell, uh, deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. One man, one woman, for life. Why? That's the atmosphere in which kids are raised up. There's a security. There's a sense of love. There's a sense of uh, where they don't have to have fear. But there's something powerful about a marriage that stays together. And so not necessarily talking about marriage. We're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about children. But God seeks godly offspring. And mothers and fathers, as I said, mothers today, we have responsibility of training our children. This may surprise you. The church is supplementary. The church is auxiliary. The, the responsibility, hear this today. Are you listening? Come on. If, if you need, the primary responsibility for raising godly children is not the church, not the preacher, not the Sunday school, not the usher, not the deacon. It is a mom and dad. Proverbs 1 and 8 says, Do not forsake the law of your father and the law of your mother. And then we see Eunice. We see Lois. They passed on the baton of their faith, and I think they did an amazing job. So it's there in the home that we learn about God. It's there in the home we learn the scriptures. It's there at home we learn to relate to each other. It's there in the home that we learn to pray, that we learn how important the Word of God is. And I think Lois and Eunice must have done an incredible job because we know that Timothy's dad was not saved. He was a Greek, not saved. But yet here's this young man, Timothy, who became a great man of God and a great helper to the Apostle Paul. So it's in the home that we see that the great mercy and the love of God it's demonstrated there. When Paul wanted to illustrate what love is, he didn't use a dad. You know what he used? He used a mom. In, in Timothy, he said this, I loved you like a mom would, would, would take you to, to her breast and nurture you. He said, I loved you like that. He said that about a mother because there's something powerful about a mother's love. We see it in the life of Jesus. I think Jesus had a great mother. The mother, the, his mother Mary, she must have been some special lady. That God of all the women that have ever been born, there was only one that was chosen to give birth to the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. And I know she loved him. You know how? Well, at the cross, mom's still there looking on. Uh, remember Simeon said, the sword will pierce your soul. Remember that in the, in the, in the dedication of Jesus at the temple? Mary, a soul, a sword will pierce your soul. Why? To see what her son, that she loved, to see what they did to him, had to pull her heart out. But we get a little picture here of a mother's love. They, were, they would go to Passover every year, all the way from Nazareth. You that were with us in Israel, you took that passage. It's a long ways to drive, to walk. took a very long time. And so they would go to Passover every year. And so Jesus, being about 12 years of age, he's in the caravan from Nazareth to Jerusalem, that is, going to temple, going to worship, going to celebrate the great deliverance from Egypt. But Jesus was like a boy like any other boy, though he was God. What's he doing? He's out chasing rabbits with the other boys. He's not, you know, he's out getting into stuff. Well, when they went back to Nazareth, he stayed in the temple. And, and they, made, they had to go a day's journey, come back a day, watch, look for him a day, finally, because there's thousands of people there. Finally, they find Jesus, and they find him in the temple, talking with the doctors of the law, astounding at his, astounded at his questions and his insight. What did Mary say? Jesus! Had her hand on her hip, guaranteed. <laughs> Mom, was a little, Mom was a little upset. I mean, you know, when Mama's not happy, come on, nobody's happy. What have you done to us? Did you not know that we were sorrowing, looking for you? Well, I can tell you this. 
Only a mother that's full of love would say that. Now, Joseph, he's probably like, hey, he's, he's fine. We'll, we'll find him, you know. But Mary, she, she, there's love there. So the task of raising up godly children is vital. Would you agree with that? Vital. Because you know why it's vital to raise up godly children's moms, dads, families? Here's the reason why. We're one generation away from losing the knowledge of God. Only one. We're one generation away. That's why we put these classrooms out here. They're very adequate and they're going to get us to where we need to go. That's a priority for us. These children are learning about Jesus Christ in a very creative way for this month. I saw one of the little kids with a I think it was Steve and Jennifer's little girl with the little, uh, little super, what am I trying to, super person? No, nah, what is it? It's uh, what was it? a Wonder Woman. Yeah, but it's, uh, what is it, Marvel. The Marvel thing that's all the, the rage. You can tell I'm really, I'm on the cutting edge of this stuff. I am really in there. I know all about it. But learning in a creative way. But they're learning about Jesus and his power and his greatness above all. But see, we're one generation away from losing the knowledge of God. You say, has this happened before? Absolutely, it's happened before. The Bible says in Joshua's time, said that in Joshua's day, the, the ones that served with Joshua and the leaders that served with him and those that saw the great works, they served. But then all of a sudden, Joshua is not on the scene anymore. Those leaders that served with Joshua weren't on the scene anymore. And here's what it says in Judges. Another generation arose that did not know the Lord. They did not know the works of God. And I fear today in the church, we're, we're seeing a generation raised up that don't know the power of God. They don't know the word of God. They don't, they don't understand the importance of the doctrines of God. And, and it concerns me. But it starts with the home. It starts with the marriage. It starts with moms. It starts with dads. It starts with cutting off some things and pulling the word of God out and getting back to those things that are important. And that's Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. So what I would like to do for these just a few moments here, I would like to give you just seven thoughts that maybe will help you as a mom, but also a dad. Could we let the dads in on this too? Come on, moms, would you do that? And I'm really talking to families today. And I think, I believe that you, you moms are glad that I'm talking about families today because this is going to help you, but it's going to help us in the work of the Lord. So I want to give you seven principles that have to do with training children. And you say, are you qualified to do this? I think so. 33 years of marriage, four daughters, all love God, I believe. And uh, so I think that maybe I have a few things I humbly bring to you. So there's seven of them. Here's the first one. This will be on the screen for us. First thing that you have to do is you need to create a taste for the Lord in them. You hear that? You need to create a taste in your children for the Lord. This can't be... This can't be, oh, well, God's sovereign. He'll do what he wants to do. No, God has already said sovereignly what he wants to do. He wants to raise godly kids. But it doesn't happen without a plan. It doesn't happen without two parents. Uh, and if there's not two parents, I I'm telling you, there's some single moms that have done incredible jobs raising kids. So if we have to have a purposeful heart that says, this is our goal. Now, this great verse, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they shall not depart from it. And then there's another verse in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see. Remember the song? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that he is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that he is good. Then it goes, and blessed is the man who trusts in him. And let me tell you this. That's a good song because it's the word of God. Have we given our kids a taste? I mean, I can tell you, my, my little Bennett, that boy could eat a pantry up. I'm telling you, he comes in, and he goes right to the pantry. Food, food. You know, he's a little guy, but he's, he's got big, meaty hands, and he's like a little chunky. I saw when little Jude was born, little Ezra was born, I thought it looked like a little giant. And you don't have, you know, you, 
you give those kids a little Oreo or a little ice cream, they know what tastes good, right? I mean, kids are, my kid's like a little over two years old. You put broccoli and ice cream there, he knows what he wants. I don't want that stupid broccoli. Give me some ice cream. And he said, you know, it'll be nice food in front of him. I want ice cream. Wow, because they've got that taste. You know, the Lord's better than ice cream. Little kids love being in the presence of God. They love to be in prayer. They, kids love the Holy Spirit because their little hearts are so open. I could go out here, and I, I would be a terrible children's pastor. I'd have them all lined up. Line up right now. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, I would be terrible. But anyway, I could give an altar call out there, and those kids would get saved every Sunday. Every Sunday. They'd get saved this Sunday. Next Sunday, I'd preach on Jesus, how much he loves them. They'd get saved next Sunday, following Sunday. Why? Because, listen, their little hearts are the good soil of Matthew 13. A child's heart is so tender. And isn't it sad that kids raise up in a home and they got taste of Nintendo and Sony this and TV and MTV and this movie and that movie and that secular thing and that ungodly thing and they taste, taste, taste of all that things. But I wonder how many children are getting a taste of the Holy Spirit at home. Taste of the Word of God at home. Taste of love at home. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come on. we got to create a taste. See, what we did with our kids, we purposely put them in places where God was going to be moving. We would, we would pray at home. We made sure they were in church. made sure they were in good Sunday school classes with good teachers. We made sure that, that, that the, the atmosphere of our home had Holy Spirit life in Him. Can I tell you this? The Holy Spirit will come where He's welcome. He wants to come in your home. God, God doesn't stay here. God's, God's not a geographical, well, I'm going to go down to the church. They're having a revival down there. God does not live in a building. He's omnipresent. He's not geographical. He lives inside of us. You understand, when, you, when we go home, Jesus is there. Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you. Come on, let him out. And let our kids taste. Oh, our kids need to taste of the love of God. Taste of, now this, maybe they don't want to taste this, but taste a good little discipline every now and then. They need to hear, no, your child, you're not to be the best friend of your child. You're to be their leader. You're to be the parents. we got to have some parents in homes. They need to hear no, and they need to hear a lot of yeses too, though. They just don't need to hear no, 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 no. I think we kind of messed up a little bit with our first daughter, but she made it. Her and her, her, and her husband passed her just about 10 miles from here. You know, we parents, let's be honest. We think that our kids, especially the first one, we think they've got, oh, my, my kids, they're not going to do what those other kids do. That's the biggest lie you ever heard in your life. <laughs> your kids just like every other kid. Oh, they're going to do this. Well, we just had, you know, we kind of put too much discipline in. Till one day, we were, in the, we were in the other room. And we could hear Lauren, our first, this is, she's 31 years old now. We could hear Lauren in the next room. And she was by herself. She was going... No, no. And we walked in there, and there was a bowl of something there, and she had her hand right up to it, and she was going, she was disciplining herself now. No, no. She was really having a fight in the flesh. No. We thought, okay, we're a little, little overboard here. So they need to hear a lot of yeses, a little bit of noes, but listen, all mixed with love. Right? I mean, if your kid knows you love them and care for them more than anything else, you can tell them no and they'll receive it. They might not receive it at that moment, but later on they're going to say, you know what, mom loved me. Dad loved me. Is that all right? Is that all right? Come on. Now our kids need to see, they need to taste. And you need to, how do they taste? They need to see the blessing that comes with serving God. Now I wish I had time to read Psalm tw- or Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Some of you, some of your eyebrows just went up. Don't read the whole thing, but it's like 60 verses. But the first part of it, first 14 verses, all these blessings will come upon you if you obey the Lord. Put him first in your life, and God says all these blessings come. 
Verse 15 says, but all these curses come on those who disobey him. All the blessings, all the curses. Our kids need to taste and see what God will do if they'll be faithful to serve him, faithful to live godly, faithful to tithe when they start young. You kids that are here, you don't, you don't wait to start tithing. You don't, just like you don't wait to start praying and wait to stop serving God, you get a dollar, a dime belongs to God. Come on, amen. You get $10, a dollar belongs to God. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to prophesy to you kids according to this word right here. You put God first in your finances, watch him bless you. Watch what God does in your life. Watch him. All these blessings, they need to taste and see. But they also need to know the consequences of not serving the Lord. They need to, you need to create a taste in them. It's called the laws of sowing and the laws of reaping. Now, in the Old Testament, Galatians chapter 6 says that whatever we sow, we reap. If we sow to the flesh, we'll reap destruction. But if we sow to the Spirit, we reap everlasting life. And, and the word, and curse in Deuteronomy is not like some mysterious curse. You could replace it with the word consequence, and it would be just as powerful because there are consequences, both good and bad. There are positive consequences when we serve God and obey God from a sincere heart and a genuine faith. But there's also consequences that come when we disobey God. And what, what we need to show our kids is a taste. God wants to bless you. God wants to bless your life. Show them that. Here's the second thing quickly. Took a little too long on that. We need to understand that our, the, the greatest needs in our children's lives are spiritual needs. It's not new tennis shoes. Nothing wrong with that. It's not Nintendo, nothing wrong with playing video games, whatever, as long as they're decent. But the greatest needs of our children are spiritual needs. See, we have a very small window, and the older I get, the more I realize how short that window is. You realize that by five years of age, five years of age, 85% of your child's personality set. And many children by five years of age, they've been so beat up, so abused, they never hear dad tell mom, I love you. They, they're just, there's turmoil, and these kids are in a pressure cooker today, all because a mom and dad don't know how to do this right. We have a very small window to, to have maximum impact. We need to have our kids in kids' church every Sunday, every Sunday, unless we're on vacation somewhere or some extenuating circumstance. We need to, be, we need to use those moments to lead our kids to Jesus Christ. We don't get do-overs. We don't get do There's a lot of things you can recycle. Time is not one of them. Time is not recyclable. We don't get do-overs. Let's pray that we pray that that scripture in Ephesians make the best of every opportunity. Buy up the time. Use every moment you can to influence your child for Jesus Christ and his good gospel. Why? Because our children, now I have a, a certain belief, and I believe it's scriptural, about children. Now, we're all born in Adam's fallen race. We're all born in Adam's race. Adam's race is a fallen race. But I don't believe that, that I will ever be judged for what Adam did. I wasn't there. I, I did not exist yet. So why would God judge me for something Adam did? But Adam's sin is not what I need to worry about. Every, listen, now, now picture these words. Just follow these words. Every human being is born with a bent. You hear this? A bent. We're all bent a certain way. We all have a certain tendency. So it's not Adam's sin that I have to worry about. It's the sins that I've committed because of my bent, broken, sinful personality before we came to know Jesus Christ. Now let me touch on this just as an aside. What about little babies? What happens to little babies that die? And the tragedy, maybe, I don't know, and I'm not trying to bring any pain, but maybe here, maybe you've lost a child through miscarriage or some, some kind of loss there. Can't imagine that would be a loss that's, I know Commodore and Stacy, we were there. So, so where, is, where is your little one? Not wanting to bring pain, but we were there. Missy held her. I believe that the moment a little child dies, immediately they go into the presence of the Lord. This belief that somehow children, little children that are innocent are, are, are accountable for sins, that they don't even understand, their little minds are not. No, that's crazy. I believe 
in, now this word, now this term is not found in the Bible, but I believe the scripture is found. I believe the principle is found there. And we call it the age of accountability. Paul said in the book of Romans, chapter 7, before the law came, I was alive. Before the law came, I was alive. But then when the law came, sin revived and I died. And I believe that that is probably talking about the time in Paul's life when he, he, he came to an age of accountability. It's, what is that, Pastor? That's a moment when a child comes to the point where they understand they're right from wrong. They understand, and that's different for every child, but at that moment, that child, and it could be 12, it could be 13, it could be whatever, it's no age, but the fact is this, that every child, every little innocent child, little innocent baby that dies for whatever reason, immediately goes in to the presence of holy God, and they're safe in his arms. Amen? That's the great God that we serve. But the truth is that that we need to know that our children need to understand the facts of the gospel from a very early age. Because there's going to come a time they're going to need the gospel. If they die before the age of accountability, you know, yeah, that's fine. But, but, it, but, but we're, we grew up. And then all of a sudden we realize that, that we have a sinful nature. And we act on that nature. And Romans 3.23 says what? All have sinned. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, God in his mercy in eternity past said, I'm going to send my son and I'm going to die. And whosoever will may say yes to Jesus and be redeemed. And, I, and today I say yes to Jesus. Amen. And I want my children and your children to say yes to Jesus. So apparently, Timothy's grandmother and mother did a great job because in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, Paul says this, continuing the things which you've learned. And then he says this, from a child, from a child, you have known the Holy Scripture, which are, which are able to make you what? Wise unto what? Nintendo? Stock market? NFL? MHL? Or NHL? We don't do the hockey thing. That's Canada. So anyway, I'll preach that sermon when I get to Canada. No, no. Make you wise, the greatest knowledge in the world, the knowledge of what? Salvation. We should be reading our kids, the Word of God, in a, in a platform that's appropriate for their age learning. Number three, quickly, children have an enemy and they, and who wants to destroy them. Isn't it interesting? You look at the Bible, and there's several places. One, in Pharaoh tried to destroy all the Hebrew boys. All those children trying to destroy them. Throw them in the now. Isn't it interesting that, that years later, Herod sought to destroy all the little boys in Bethlehem? See, isn't, it, isn't that something that there's that one of the most dangerous places in our nation today is in a mother's womb? Millions and millions of children have been, have been taken away. Their lives have been taken, cut short. Who do you think is behind that? Do you think the God of life is behind that? Do you think the God who said, I, I'm the God of life, he gives life? No. Satan comes to steal. He comes to kill. And he comes to destroy. I watched uh, a clip. It was shocking to me, actually, of uh, a, a, little, uh, a little old lady, Catholic lady. God bless the Catholics today. You know, let me tell you this. Anywhere in the country that you find where they are murdering little children in these abortion clinics, you know who you're going to find there? You're going to find Catholic people. And they're going to be standing outside, the blessed Catholics, and they're going to they're be with their rosary. Now, with it, I disagree in several, many doctrinal statements, but I'm going to tell you something. They believe in life. And, and this little old lady was standing outside of a Philadelphia abortion clinic. Just a senior adult. Wasn't, she wasn't saying anything. She was just praying the rosary quietly. You couldn't even hear her. And then there was a Catholic mother with her three teenage daughters. They weren't doing anything. They were just standing there quietly praying. And then a man walks up. He is a Pennsylvania state senator. And he starts, would you ever believe this would happen in America? He starts berating them, calling her an old woman and berating the girls, little teenage girls, trying to get their information so that he could post it and people could come to their house. I mean, that's really creepy. That guy is really creepy. Well, later on, we found out he's a homosexual and, you know, probably hates God, hates the church. Isn't it crazy that, that the place where we should be 
there, and I've stood out in front of abortion clinics and stood there and prayed. And, you know, I don't know how effective that is, but at least I stood there and took my place. But don't you know this? It's the enemy that's into the destruction of children. But we and Jesus Christ and God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are about life. He wants to preserve these kids and protect these precious little children. I'm going to tell you what the world wants to do. The world wants to contaminate your children. And the sad fact is he's winning on many fronts. Satan is winning on many fronts. Now you can stick your head in the sand, Pollyanna. You can be that way. I'm telling you, he's winning on too many fronts. And so what we need to do is do as our church is double up our efforts to, to bring children to Christ. We need to double our efforts in children's ministry. Many of you invested your money to get these classrooms done. You can invest your money to get a church built up here. And, and I'm telling you, God's going to bless it because God loves kids. The tragic thing is this. When a baton is passed, you know, we know that, that young people have a choice today. And because the world is pulling at them so much, one of the most tragic things that I've watched in my lifetime is watch young people raised in a church, kids' church, nursery, kids' church, youth group, etc. And then they come to an age of college or whatever, and they walk away from God. Want nothing to do with God, nothing to do with church. That's a tragic thing. And not only tragic, that's a dangerous thing. The Bible said it would be better not to, I know it's a different context, but it would be better not to have known God than to have known the commandment, to know Jesus Christ, and then to walk away. It would be better not to have ever known anything about God than to know Him and walk away from Him. Very important that we pass the baton rightly. Number four, we need to pour salt into our children through godly living. Look, look at this scripture. This is Mark chapter 9, verse number 50. Mark chapter 9, verse number 50. Here's a strange verse. Are you still with me today? Okay, I hope this is all right, moms. I'm fighting for your family today. Uh, Mark chapter 9 and verse number 50. Here's a very strange verse. I'll explain it. Now, this is, these are the words of Christ. S salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? How, how will you season it? Note it. Now, here's what he says. Have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. Epson probably likes this verse, you know, Mr. Epson. Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Have salt in ourselves? What in the world does that mean? Well, having salt in yourself, really salt in the scripture is about godly character. The same type of verse is used in chapter, in chapter 5, verse 13, right after Jesus talked about Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the hunger and thirst, blessed, blessed, blessed. And then, he's, then he talks about the salt. And he's talking about the salt of godly character. You know, salt in the, in the first century was a preservative. They didn't have any refrigerators or freezers. So to preserve something, meat, let's say, they would wrap it in salt. They would bury it many times, and that salt would, would hinder decay. It would, it would fight off decay. Let me say it that way. It would fight off decay. Do you know the salt? Listen, the salt of godly character can keep the world at bay from our homes. But if there's not that salty character of the Word of God, the salty character of the Holy Spirit, Colossians 3.16, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Ephesians chapter, or Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 3, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Come on, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, temperance, against which there is no law. When we have salt in our, health, in our, in our families, I'm telling you, moms and dads and families, when we have the salt of Christ there and the influence of the Spirit of God there, there is something heavenly about our homes. It affects the kid powerfully. And then he said this, have peace. Have peace among yourselves. And the truth is, there's only that only when there's godly character can there be true peace. Without righteousness, there's no peace. Watch anywhere in the world where there's sin, there'll be turmoil in every area, business and every other area. Righteousness brings blessing, prosperity, and it brings peace. Have peace. What would happen if we in our homes, if we had the salt of godly character in us, it'd be such a peaceful place. So we need the 
salt of the kingdom that produces peace. How different our, our lives would be if we had real salt. Number five, and this is, uh, goes without saying, but we'll say it. Guard who influences your children. Remember this verse as a warning. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Evil companionship corrupts good morals. Anyone who influences your children away from God is not their friend. Anyone who leads your children into temptation is not their friend. Anyone who influences your children to disobey the clear word of God is not their friends. I will say it again. Guard, guard, guard who influences your children. Because if it's the wrong kind of person, you're looking at a mirror of where your children are going to be in a day, a week, a month. Because little children are very impressionable. Number six, we need to recognize that our children are not miniature adults. They have childish tendencies. And every parent knows that. Children are gullible. They're easily swayed. They're easily excited. And most kids, and now really most adults, live simply by emotion. Wherever their emotions take them. Not principle, not character, not truth. Emotion. And what's happened is we have entertained a generation of young people who are now... Are are you listening? Look at me here. We have entertained generations, really, who are now holding the most powerful positions in our nation. You want to know why our nation is like it is? This is a product of 40, 50 years of secularism, of liberalism, of ignoring the Word of God. And now look where we are. Things are happening, and I'm, this is not a political sermon. I'm just, I, I could care less about politics, but I do care about our nation, and I do care about the church, and I do care about where people are going in eternity. So we're seeing, what we're seeing in our nation is what has happened when you throw the Word of God out and you raise people on false ideologies and entertainment. Now, think about this. Muse, M-U-S-E. The definition of muse is to think or meditate on some subject, to reflect or to ponder, usually in silence, to to muse, M-U-S-E, the definition, to think about something deeply, to really think about something. So if muse, M-U-S-E, is to think about something deeply, then what is a muse? Any time you put an A before something, you cancel it out. Just like millennial or, or uh, you know, the millennia or amillennial means no millennial. So when you muse, you think deeply. You really think deeply on a subject. But when you put amuse, amuse means to entertain, to divert, some, many times with an enjoyable, cheerful uh, manner. A synonym would be beguile, charm, seduce. I'll bring that point up to you parents and to you mothers, because we've sent a generation now raised up who thinks that they have to be entertained every moment of the day. If I'm not having fun, this can't be good. And now it's affected the church. If we're not entertaining every young person and making them laugh and, and, uh, you know, and going, you know, they go home from jail, it wasn't fun today. It's not always meant to be fun. Life is not always going to be fun. We want our kids to have a good time. But we want it to be sanctified. We don't want to raise a group of young people who think that they have to be entertained every moment of the day, every second of the day. And then when it's not fun anymore, what do they do? They move on down the road. And we're watching a generation who's been raised on that. And they've moved on from marriage, moved on from the church, moved on from every you know, job. Can't keep jobs. Why? Because somehow they got it in their mind that I've got to be entertained every moment of the day. And what we've lost is the ability to have discipline. You'll never reach your potential without discipline. No one ever reached their full potential without having a disciplined spiritual life. I understand little kids are not there. But incrementally, they should be growing and knowing how to have self-discipline so that they can have the blessing of God. They can have a good marriage. They can be the person, most of all, that God 
desires them to be. Would you say an amen? amen? Here's the last thing and we'll close. The greatest thing that you can do for your children is to build into them biblical thinking. The word of God says this. Do not be conformed to this world. But then it says, but be transformed. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. The mind is what the enemy's after. If the enemy can get the mind, he's got everything else. Because, because listen, I've learned this in my lifetime. You don't live outside your, your belief system. You can say, oh, I believe about, you know, I, I've seen, I believe in prayer. Do you believe in prayer? Hey, man, I believe in prayer. I believe in prayer, Pastor. No one lives outside their belief system. We started, we started prayer almost a year ago. We have three prayer meetings a week. How many is that? Three a week, 52 or 12 months. How many is that? 156 prayer meetings, almost, not quite. Let's say 135. We've had 135 prayer meetings in this church. Some of you say you believe in prayer. You haven't been to one. So you're 135 to zero. So those people that say they believe in prayer, the truth is we don't live outside our belief system. What you really believe, you do. That's why a child needs to know the truth of the Word of God. Because if they can know the truth and believe the truth, they can live the kind of life that God wants. Not just saying you believe something. We don't live outside of our belief system. We live what we believe. What we need to do is this. See, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119.11. That's a good verse, isn't it? Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I heard someone say, this book will keep you from sinning, but sin will keep you away from this book. You get the word of God in your heart, you'll get victory over sin. You neglect this book, your life's going to be weak. You want your children to be strong and powerful and be the persons that God wants them to be. Teach them the word of God. Get them to church. Get them in these classes because kids love Jesus. They love the presence of God. Their hearts are ready. We need to make sure our hearts are right as moms, as dads, as families. Now, let me, let me finish this. If we want our children to choose the best, we need to, they need to know the best. Um, here's a verse in Philippians 1.9. It says this, and, I, and Paul's praying, And I pray that your love may still abound more and more, in knowledge and all discernment. I want you to grow in your knowledge. And he says this. He gives the reason why. Verse 10. That you may approve the things that are excellent. One translation says that you may choose what is best. The things that are excellent. Do you know why many young people today are choosing such low lives? Their marriages are messed up. They just make poor choices. Because they didn't have a mom and dad that would teach them and show them. Son, this is the best for you. This is what God's best is. Choose the best. You know, we can have the best. God wants us to have the best. And you know what the best is? He's, he's the best. Come on, his will is the best. I close with this little story. You may have, uh, you may have heard about this story. It's a, it's a story, a contrast between, between uh, a man by the name of Max Jukes and Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you saw this. And I think uh, one, one guy said that some of this information is not quite correct, and then he came out with some other information, and I thought, well, that's just as bad. But, but in 1877, a gentleman, uh, a, a sociologist named Richard L. Dungdale, 1877, did, did a study, did a contrast between Max Jukes, Max Jukes and Jonathan Edwards. They lived kind of in the same time frame. And, and the way that he came about this, he was working for a prison and somehow he discovered 42 members of Jukes' family, somehow that had been in prison some way, in the prison system. And so somehow he began to trace the family. He traced 1,200 members of, of Max Jukes' family. And my understanding is he didn't know the Lord, didn't serve the Lord. Some said he was even an atheist. So, so look at the result here. Look at the result of that life. 
He said this, 310 of the 1,200 were professional paupers. He said that's more than one in four. 300 of the 1,200, that's one in four also, died in infancy from lack of care and good conditions. 50 of the women in his family lived notorious lives of debauchery. 400 men and women were physically wrecked early in their lives because of their wicked living. Seven were murderers. Sixty were habitual thieves and spent an average of 12 years in their lawlessness. 130 of the 1,200 were convicted more or less often of some kind of crime. That was Max Jukes, many of his family members. And then he, in the study, talked about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, a godly Puritan minister in the, 18, in the 1700s. And it, and it reads, listen, Edwards was one of the most respected preachers of his day. He attended Yale at the age of 13. Later, he would become the president of Princeton College. He married his wife, Sarah, in 1727, and they were blessed with 11 children. Come on, Mom, 11 children. Every night, listen, every night when Mr. Edwards was home, he would spend an hour conversing with his family and then praying a blessing over each of his children. Jonathan and his wife, Sarah, passed on a great godly legacy to their 11 children. Guess what their family produced? One of them was a vice president of the United States. Three of them were senators, United States senators. Three of them were state governors. Three of them were mayors. Thirteen of them were college presidents. Thirty of them were judges. Sixty-five were professors. Eighty, eighty held public, were public office holders. There were 100 of them were lawyers. I guess that's all right, but... There were 100 missionaries, pastors, and theologians that came from the Edwards, from those 11 children. And I'll leave you with this verse, 2 Timothy 1.5. It's where we started. When I call to remembrance your genuine faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your mother, Lois, and then your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded... That it's in you also. Amen. Now what I want to do right now is just, I want to pray for the mothers. I won't make you come up front. You probably don't want to come up front. But I want to pray for you mothers. You're so special today. The difference you, the difference you make in your family is, it's incalculable. I'm, I'm telling you. I know my wife's mother, she mentioned her. She was an amazing lady, treated me like a son. Just thrilled. I mean, sometimes my wife and I get a little fuss, and her, my mother-in-law always sided with me. She was such a wise woman. It would make my wife so mad. But she treated me like a mother. Even though she wasn't my biological mother, she was just a great and, and all, they always went to church, always took my wife to church. It wasn't like, you know, emotion thing. It's just, it's the way we live. This is what we do because God said, don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together. It's just, it's what we did. It's the commitment. And that had a great impact on my wife. And you're making a great difference, you mothers. Now, when we talk about Mother's Day... I realize there's different feelings on Mother's Day. For most, it's a good feeling. For some, it's not such a great feeling. For those that didn't have a great relationship with their mother, for those that lost mothers early, for those that maybe didn't lose mothers early, but they're with the Lord now, they lived out their lives, there's all kind of different feelings, and I understand that, and we respect that. But I want you to know that God loves you. He knows exactly where you are today. Whether it's a good feeling, a sad feeling, an empty feeling, the Lord knows all about that. And, and I believe the Lord appreciates the efforts, and He's going to bless your efforts. But I, I've noticed this, that after your kids get married, you don't stop raising your kids. You ever notice that? <laughs> you don't stop raising your children. 
It's a lifelong influence that you'll have. It doesn't stop till the day you draw your last breath. So in a sense, we're always passing the baton, aren't we? We're kind of always passing it. We're always influencing. We're always. So, you know, you, you think about when, you know, we're all going to, we're all going to leave this world one day. And, and what, what are our kids going to say? What's the first thing that's going to come to their mind when they think of mom or they think of dad? You know, is it that mom was a person of prayer? Mom, whatever. And so we've got to understand we're passing that baton all the time. And, and the most important task that we have is to raise up godly seed. And I know this, we all need the Lord's help. We need his help. We need his grace. There's nothing like it. I know June 4th, 1988, when I held my first daughter in my arms, that, that is an amazing thing. You think, this is a little person. <laughs> this is a little human being here that we, you know, it's not just me and her now. It's us now. And it's just an amazing, almost epiphany almost. It's like, wow. Because every child is a miracle. Every child is loved by God. Do you know there's no illegitimate children? I've met plenty of illegitimate parents, but no illegitimate children. Amen? Every child is a gift from God. And I would just close, I'll close in prayer, but with this statement. What every child deserves, every child deserves to be loved. Unconditionally. It doesn't mean that they're going to always do right. Doesn't mean they don't mean dis need discipline. But every child needs to know that if the whole world turns their back on me, there is one person who will never turn. Even if I'm the wrongest person in the world, there's someone who will always be in that my corner, and that's my mother. That is my mother. That does something to a kid. That's an amazing thing. I just want to pray for you. Our Father and our God, today, so grateful for our mothers. I'm grateful for my mom, that she loves the scripture. I'm grateful that my mom prays for me. I'm grateful that my mom encouraged me in the ministry. I'm grateful that today my mom's in church. Father, today we're grateful for every mom here. I pray that you would let them feel so bathed in your grace and in your compassion and love. The task of a mom is amazing. Lord, to think that our mothers carry us on the inside of them for nine months. They carry us and then go through childbirth, sacrificing the pain of it all to bring us into this world. And not only does every child deserve to be loved, but every mother deserves to be honored, loved, and respected by their children. And today we bring honor. And I, I pray for those mothers here today that maybe feel like they haven't done as good a job as they would have wanted to. Lord, let them receive your mercy today. That you don't deal with us according to what we deserve, but you deal with us in grace. And let every mother today feel a sense of your mercy and your forgiveness and your compassion. Let every mother that has guilt, let that guilt be washed away. And from this moment forward, let them strive to be what you desire for them to be. I just pray special, special grace on this day. And Lord, we're reminded, Lord Jesus, we're reminded that that even on the cross, you were thinking about your mother. There on the cross, you looked at John and said, John, behold your mother. And that was your way of saying, take care of mother. That is amazing to me. And you want us to care for our mothers. Strengthen our church, O oh God. Strengthen the families in our church. Strengthen marriages, those that have had broken marriages. Lord, let them continue to serve you and bring up their children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. 
we know that single dads and single moms can make an incredible difference if they'll just continue to serve you and be that good example. We, we pray for our community today, so broken. We pray, God, that your mercy and grace and revival would sweep our city. We thank you for this today.